0: We hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, my name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner at Hugh James, who heads up the abuse team. So welcome to our latest podcast. In this podcast, we talk about sensitive matters concerning child abuse. So if you feel that you may be upset by anything that we are going to be discussing in this podcast, Now's the time to go away, and make a cup of tea, or do something else. Otherwise, please stay with us. So, in this podcast, I am joined by three core participants from the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse, which reported recently, it published its final report. And I have with me Duncan, Jason, and Becky. So, Becky, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Pleasure. Hi to Jason too, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Thank you. And last, by no means least, we've got Duncan. Hi, Duncan. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having us along. Thank you very much. So, as I said in the intro, we're going to be discussing the report that has recently been published by ICSA. ICSA was established by the government quite a few years ago when Theresa May was Home Secretary. An awful lot has happened since Theresa May Mm. was Home Secretary. And, of course, when ICSA published its report, it coincided with the resignation of Liz Truss as Prime Minister, or she announced her resignation to be more precise. So it all happened on the 20th of October, 2022. And I'm sure in many, many years' time, when there are general knowledge quizzes, Questions will be asked what happened on the 20th of October 2022. Two very important things happened. We had the resignation of a prime minister, but many would say the most important of the two developments that day was the fact that ICSA published its report. So the report was a very comprehensive one, I, I would like to say, that made a whole series of recommendations to try and address the many injustices. That relate to child abuse, as regards Mm -hmm. why it happens, how it happens, how it's dealt with, and of course, the central part of all of that are the victims or the survivors of child sexual abuse. And this is where our core participants, Duncan, Jason, and Becky, come in. So let's get the show on the road, and I'll stop talking, and I'm going to ask each one of you to perhaps describe for a moment or two what it was like to be a core participant. What was a core participant? So let's start with Becky.
1: Uh, it was hard work being a core participant. And as uh, evidence that obviously we gave as a group. It entailed me telling my story, what happened to me, why I felt the need to be a part of it, why I felt that mandatory reporting was necessary and the difference I thought it would make. So there was that. And of course, each time you tell your story, a little bit of you is affected by that or can be.
0: Um, Can I interrupt you? And for our audience, it's fair to say that you are, without having to go into the detail, because it's not necessary, you are a
1: survivor. I'm a survivor. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And so there was lots of evidence to give and not just individually, but as a group. And we had academics as well that were part of that group. So not everybody that was a part of our core participant group were survivors some of them were academics some of them were elders within the high control religion I was a part of and there was also the evidence against from the Christian congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses you know against mandatory reporting I would say in my opinion and so we had to wade through that as well and all of us were full-time working we had families you know we had our ordinary routine as well as fitting in so you know it was hard work Alan to be fair. It was worth it for the end result, if that makes sense.
0: Exactly. And we'll come back to that end result in a moment. So I'm going to pass on to Jason now and see what Jason has to tell us about being a core participant.
1: Yeah, for me,
2: it's I haven't had any direct impact with child sexual abuse, but I, I have a good understanding of Jehovah's Witnesses and the background to Jehovah's Witnesses and their policies and procedures from a a number of years of experience of collecting data relating to how jehovah's witnesses handling handle child sexual abuse Talking about that subject is is never comfortable. It's always a, a difficult subject and, and trying to get information and trying to gather that information and explain it in a way that people can understand because the Jehovah's Witnesses religious group is, is quite a complex one, especially in the way that they deal with child sexual abuse. So, uh, yeah, for me, it's been an interesting one, but it's also not been a, a very comfortable one either.
0: OK, thanks for that. And we'll come back to that. Duncan,
3: I'd uh, go along with what's been said so far in terms of the effort put in, a lot of time spent trawling through a lot of a lot of paperwork, wading through evidence, trying to extract the the meaningful points. But also, I'd, I would add, it was an eye-opening experience for mm. me, certainly. I had always imagined that the particular group that I'd been a part of, in, in common with Jason and Becky, Jehovah's Witnesses, I'd always imagined that that we were kind of isolated and special and different. The experience that ICSA suggests that actually the same themes recur across many religions and mm. essentially the more high control the religion, the more danger there is to children is is the thing that I
0: took away.
1: Yeah, agree.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. So you've all had the opportunity now to read the report that was published on the 20th. And what do you think struck you most, either positively or negatively?
1: Okay, so as a solution-focused therapist, I have to look at the positive first, okay? I have to practice what I preach. So the positive from the report is that I'm really glad it recommends mandatory reporting. I found it was good that it looked at the cost of not having mandatory reporting. So I think it mentioned that the Home Office estimates that it, as a society, in one year, it costs us ten billion. So survivors cost the healthcare. Yeah. Now I have experience of that, working in a big university hospital, working in healthcare. And there's been occasions where somebody with mental health challenges comes to the hospital. In their view, the board's view, too many times. And I learned working there that some hospitals, some hospitals will ban patients if they start costing them too much. Right. Very so cool. survivors cost the healthcare system. So that's a direct cost. And I would say that I can't get to their full earning potential either, perhaps, because of the mental health difficulties that they have from the abuse. So if MPs are looking at the cost of mandatory reporting, I would say, well, it's already costing us as a society and survivors may not be able to be the best taxpayers either. So yeah. it's costing them in that way, if that makes sense. So I really think that they need to sit down and and not use that as an excuse. Well,
0: indeed. And I think it's very short-sighted because the cost to the country in human terms and financial terms of child abuse is immense. Wasted lives, damaged lives. It affects families, communities, yeah. neighbourhoods. It's not you're not dealing with just the survivor. You're talking about, you know, the survivor's family,
3: Absolutely. You know,
0: friends, um, you know, just think about it. If, you know, there's abuse in a school, for example, it's not just the victims, it's the entire school that gets affected. Yes. You know, the staff, it just ripples. The cost is immense. And uh, yeah. I, I just think that that fact is too often overlooked. Everything's looked in short-term fashion rather than looking at the medium to long-term.
1: Yes, it's almost like, well, can we just put a plaster over this? Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. We're, we're going to obviously be discussing mandatory reporting because that seems to be the key component of ICSA's recommendations. They probably, whether they would agree or not, I don't know. But of the, the panel, Lexis J and her colleagues, that does seem to be the, the main plank of their report but we'll come back to that so let's go on to um duncan and jason in turn to see what they've got to say about their you know what they took away as the most sort of striking aspect of ixa's report
3: i suppose initial reaction was great mandatory reporting recommended sounds very positive until you start to read the small print you probably know by now that i'm quite fond of analogies it would seem to me like a a pub (laughs) offering free free beer for life to anyone over the age of 75 when accompanied by a parent or guardian. That's that's kind of how it seems you you give with one hand and then take away with the other. We'll probably talk about it a bit more later but the conditions under which mand- mandatory yeah. reporting is is applied in a in the legal sense under which it becomes a legal obligation with criminal consequences. By the time you whittle down to whom this applies and under what circumstances it applies, it it seemed very weak by the end of it. And some of the other recommendations, too, I felt rely quite heavily on the willingness of organisations to receive help. So it, it talked about these new agencies that should be set up in England and Wales. They should be a repository of useful information for people where somebody could go if they were going to set up some kind of group for teaching children in a religious sense or whatever. They could go to these organisations, but that's assuming that they will do. Our experience with the, the organisation of Jehovah's Witnesses says they believe that they're already ahead of the game because after all they're directed by God. So why why would they need to go to some outside agency to seek advice on how best to protect children? They believe that they've got it wrapped up already and none of this applies to them. So again to me a lot of a lot of the other recommendations seem to rely far too heavily on people taking the initiative to access the help that these agencies might be able to offer, rather than insisting that they do so.
0: Okay, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Jason?
2: Yeah, and just in my background, I'm all for the data protection and records retention. One of the things I found most interesting in the report was access to records. As we know, and we know from our research, that Jehovah's Witnesses have a huge database relating to child sexual abuse, but they don't give any access to it. What the report here is recommending is that they hold on to those records for 75 years for most and up to 100 years for foster children. And for me, that I think that's extremely important because Jehovah's Witnesses is part of their investigations and it, it does include any data that they collect as part of their investigations. Jehovah's Witnesses elders are directed to destroy all their notes and just keep a broad overview of that. But if this recommendation comes in, they would have to hold on to those records. And also victims would be allowed to access those records to be able to get some justice. And for me, that's a positive thing. On the negative side of things, then, from that is, is I just don't think there's a strong disciplinary process for groups who would go against this kind of recommendation if it became law or any other recommendation if they became law. That's one of the downsides to to this report, I believe, is is not giving strong discipline in the sense that religions or any other group that uh, deal with children, that it stops them in their tracks and they say, okay, we got a report because terrible things may happen to our group as opposed to right now it just seems to be that they'd be named and shamed and we've seen with the Australian Royal Commission Jehovah's Witnesses don't care if they're named and shamed you know so yeah Yeah. that's that's my point really.
0: Okay before we move on I suppose for anyone listening and we I don't want us to be accused of being not balanced in all of this we know that the Jehovah's Witnesses dispute much of any sort of criticisms that have come from and don't accept basically the foundation for any sort of criticisms and, and so on. But anyway, so moving on from that, I think we're going to be talking about mandatory reporting. So mandatory reporting is all about, isn't it? It is reporting the risk of child abuse or knowledge of child abuse, the child has been abused or there's a concern that the child is being abused and it's actually reporting it whether it be to social services or the police. I think that is a fair summary of what mandatory reporting Mm. is all about and in this country at the moment there is no legal obligation to report the concern that a child is being abused and I think most people would find that extraordinary. Um, mm. Lots of countries around the world do have mandatory reporting. France, for example. Western Australia, as Jason has mentioned, we've had the Royal Commission in Australia and that did a lot of work on mandatory reporting and the Australian state governments of varying degrees have done a lot about the recommendations made by the Royal Commission in many ways. So lots of places, lots of mandatory reporting, which says you must report And if you don't, then there's consequences. Those consequences could be you've committed a criminal offence by not reporting. So that's how important it is seen. So ICSA, in its report, has recommended mandatory reporting. And like Duncan said, well, you know, that's obviously great. You know, it's good news. And what we're going to be talking about is the good news. But when you start to read the small print, so to speak, it starts to have a different look. Now, stop me if my summary is inaccurate or unfair, but basically, ICSA is saying with its recommendation on mandatory reporting, if, for example, you're a police officer or, say, a social worker, and a child comes to you and says, I've been sexually abused, or the social worker or police officer witnesses a child being sexually abused, they've got to report it, and if they don't, then they will have committed a criminal offence. Sounds good, but we know from experience that many, many situations are very different to that. But the adult, whether it's the police officer or the social worker, don't necessarily witness it. Be very, I've never come across a case actually where a police officer or a right. social workers actually witness a child being abused. But then you've got this other bit where the child comes to you and reports that they've been abused okay and again it's not often that I've come across that and then moving down if you become aware of a concern you've got to report it but there's no consequence if you don't report it which seems Mm. to me in my experience of these things crazy, because that is the most common situation.
3: That was exactly what I yeah. thought, Alan, was was that the, the bit that has, has become a legal requirement with consequences actually covers the kind of cases that generally would be reported now anyway, where it is somebody who's got the appropriate training and where they do receive a direct allegation from a child. Most likely, They would report that now, even though it's not legally required. That, as you said, is is a small percentage of cases, mostly. and, And I was thinking about the ones that we know about personally. They're cases where the child's report has been to their parent, not directly to somebody who's a mandated reporter. Maybe the parent informs someone, in our case, Typically, it would be an elder in the congregation. So then you've got the debate over, first of all, is that person a mandated reporter? Do they have a a direct position of trust relative to the child? There'll be all kinds of debate about that. And then there'll be a secondary debate over, does it count that they heard the allegation secondhand? The child didn't come to them, the child went to the parent and the parent went to the elder. So those two things, the limitation on who's a mandated reporter and the limitation on the circumstances of the allegation becoming known, both of those things together just seem to narrow the field so so much that it's almost where we are now. Indeed. It doesn't make a big difference.
0: Yes. And it may well be the argument ought to be with my argument would be is that you don't need all these silos, so to speak. No. Now, my view is is that an adult learns of a child being at risk of abuse. the adult, whoever that adult happens to be, whether it be police officer, social worker, school teacher, someone at the church,
1: Family member? They,
0: yeah, they should report. And, you know, it may well be that they received the information secondhand. So what? What is to stop them from picking up the phone and saying to the police, I'm giving you this information, Mrs. So-and-so has told me that her son is being abused, and um, I think you ought to know about it.
2: Yeah. If we compare it to the Irish Children First Act, and it's quoted in the it, ITSA report that the, that Ireland as well has um, mandatory reporting. But under, under our legislation, it's anyone that has any knowledge, belief or reasonable suspicion that a child has been harmed, is being harmed or is at risk of being harmed. And that covers a lot of areas. Mm. Why they can't put wording like that into the report is, is very confusing to me.
1: Didn't France come over? and do a presentation to to IGSA, because, you know, yeah, yeah, so I I just think, why make it complicated? Why on earth, you know, like you said, we should as adults have a duty of care Mm. to to all children Mm. and France have that, you know, if you see somebody in need, you help them, you know? So if you hear of a report, you ring up somebody who's trained to deal with it. It's not our responsibility, to deal with it, it's whoever the organization is that that you need to ring. In fact, it I think in France it applies to any road traffic accident as well, not just children yeah. with childhood sexual abuse. It applies to road traffic accidents. You know, if you see an accident, you're duty bound as a citizen to help, mm. as long as it's not putting your life at risk. And then, of course, it goes to the courts, and the courts are the ones who are able to look at individual cases and see whether prosecution needs to take place there. They're qualified in the law. Hmm. So why can't we just make mandatory reporting that we all have a responsibility and duty of care to the children in this country? So,
0: yes, as you're explaining that, I was thinking of a very recent case where, sadly, the child concerned actually died, but a nursery worker had seen bruises and injuries on this child on nine separate occasions and she'd had some training but in spite of that right. training she didn't tell anybody and you just think well if this person perhaps had seen her neighbor's house being burgled she probably would have dialed 999 and said my neighbor's Quite. house is being burgled but when you know she was faced with this child on nine separate occasions with bruises and unexplained injuries she didn't do anything mm. And mandatory reporting needs to cover individuals like that so that they understand I've got an obligation here to tell somebody. And then the duties discharge. She's done her job. And then it's up to the social services to find out why this kid has unexplained injuries.
3: In fact, I noticed the the report did identify one of its aims, and one of the aims of these new agencies was to raise public awareness and to to make people conscious of what they should do. So, okay, if we acknowledge this is what any member of the public should do, then why does the mandatory reporting requirement not apply to every member of the public? Then if we've recognised that's the right thing for them to do, why not extend the law to them? The courts can decide the level of responsibility. To what extent was it reasonable to expect this person to report? To what extent were they able to do something to assist? To what extent might they be culpable Mm. because they failed to do so. That will vary from individual to individual, but the courts can Mm. decide those cases. We don't need all of that detail to be nailed down.
2: No, exactly. Just on the the requirements for a mandatory reporter, I think once you narrow those requirements... It gets very confusing for mandated reporters to figure out, well, is it for me to report or is it for someone mm. else now and who is to report? Whereas if it's kind of broader and it's left to when you find anything, if you know anything at all, report it. That means mm. you'd have more than one person reporting. You'd have a number of people reporting in some situations. And that's not a problem. That's a, that's that's right. a good thing. Yeah, because it, it actually helps the situation and helps that child. So I just, it's, to me, it's just extremely confusing why they would restrict it to just three certain situations. Well, that's right, because yeah. that
0: neatly feeds into the other sort of exceptional caveat, which is in respect of youngsters, children aged between 13 and 16, who are having, in quotes, a consensual relationship uh, and then that's in, that's imposing a sort of value judgment, and um, I don't think it's right for an adult deciding. Oh well, that's consensual. It's getting back to this, you know, lifestyle choice problem that we saw with the Rotherham abuse scandal. That's what concerns me. It's that yeah. there shouldn't be any. It should be for the authorities to decide well, that fourteen-year-old had informed consent. Unlikely, in my experience. But if that's the the case that this 14 or 15 year old made an informed choice and was giving informed consent.
1: I don't see how that can work because surely there's a power imbalance there. Mm. If it's an adult with somebody 13 years of age, there is a power imbalance there. How can you lower it down to the age of 13? You know, an adult knows how to manipulate a child's mind. A child molester will know how to groom and will know how to manipulate a child's mind. I was 12 when I gave a tiny little bit of my story. That's pretty close to 13. Mm. And absolutely, I would totally disagree that somebody at 13 would be able to not feel that there was a power imbalance and possibly just go along with
3: something just on a point point of accuracy my understanding of what the report said was that the exception they were making was where there was a small age difference between the the two people so if the child was 13 14 15 and the other person with whom they were having a relationship was also 13 14 15 they were trying to say that was the exception. Maybe I misunderstood it, but I didn't understand it to refer to, you know, someone in their, in their 30s having a relationship with a 13, 14, 15-year-old child. It was specifically excluding where there was a small age difference. But I think in general, again, it kind of plays into this idea that they're always seeking to nail down the nitty-gritty details rather than saying the courts can make a decision whether or the Crown Prosecution Service makes a decision. So I think at the APPG, as an example, we talked about the possibility of maybe there's a boyfriend and girlfriend who are both 16 years old. One of them turns 17 and then becomes a mentor at the youth club that they both attend. So now this person, the 17-year-old, is now in a position of trust with respect to the 16-year-old, but they were in a relationship before. Are you going to prosecute? Well, probably not. But what I'm what I'm saying is, in, in all of these cases, who's in a position of trust? Who's a mandated reporter? What age difference constitutes needs to be prosecuted or not? Those are all things you need to decide on a case-by-case basis. So um, let yeah. the law be broad in it, in its compass and let the Crown Prosecution Service make sensible decisions to say, actually, in this case we don't need to apply the law, we don't need to make a prosecution because it's not in the public interest to prosecute a a 17-year-old whose girlfriend is 16 just because he got promoted to be a a supervisor at the youth club. That doesn't make sense, even though by the letter of the law officially he's now in a position of trust.
0: Yeah, and I understand entirely where you're coming from, Duncan. I'm, I'm sort of thinking of some of the cases that I've dealt with where the survivors still struggle to see themselves as victims because of the effectiveness of the grooming that they
1: Mm,
0: were subjected to. There were 15, 16, say, they came from very difficult backgrounds and they were befriended, in quotes, by, say, Mm. a young man in his early 20s and the grooming then obviously developed into something far more serious and, you know, these individuals end up going to prison and serving very long sentences and we're all familiar with Rotherham and Telford and all those cases where there was a lot of this so I'm curious as to whether ICSA had any of that in mind when they are recommending Mm. this exception because the victim survivor would be saying oh yes I um I gave informed consent at the time it was only some years later that I realized that I was being exploited, exactly. even, though, even though they still struggle to accept, in yeah. my experience, that they were exploited. So can I can sort of understand why ICSA is keen not to sort of criminalise that sort of two 16-year-olds and a 16 and a 17-year-old and so on. But again, it's imposing great power on an adult to say, well, mm. I think they were consenting, therefore I don't need to report it. Because mm. actually, let's just say you had a 14 and 15-year-old. Well, actually, should that really be going on? What is actually going on?
2: Again,
3: I would say make the reporting broad. Make the scope of who's a mandated reporter broad. Make the the circumstances under which you make a report broad. And then you're involving expert people with training early on in the process. Instead of leaving it to an amateur to look at the scenario and say, do I need to report or not? The answer's simple. Yes, you need to report. Then somebody who's trained, somebody who's an expert with experience will look at the circumstances and, and they might decide, good that you reported, but in this case, a prosecution isn't necessary. That's all fine. But that airs on the side of safety, doesn't it? Exactly.
1: This is why we need MPs involved with this, because they need to put pressure on local government and councils to have those social workers that are trained to deal with this sort of thing. Because unfortunately, at the moment, social workers, they're coming out with no training at all to deal with childhood sexual abuse. They don't know what to look for. They don't know how to deal with it. So this is why we need this pushing through. So that we can get action as quickly as possible for children. It's shocking to think that we even need to have this debate. We even needed to have an inquiry that went on for seven odd years. Do we need mandatory reporting or not? Why should that even be a question? You know, surely the answer is obvious, yes. And surely the answer is obvious that it's all of us,
0: all adults are required to report. Well, that's only where I would come from. That's my own personal view yeah yeah i just think of all the cases that i've dealt with over the years had someone picked up the phone a lot of trouble could have been avoided avoided and a lot of lives saved and so on and of course there's many cases also where the concerned neighbor has reported but then no one has done anything with that information you think well that yes it's just crazy and so wrong yeah.
1: Yeah, and I I think, you know, if this goes through, if the government push this through, there's going to be more discussion around it. There's going to be more training, you would hope anyway, around looking for signs of childhood sexual abuse, more conversations around it. You would hope that by bringing in social workers that are trained to deal with this, they would pick up on a report that's made to them. And I would also hope that this would help parents to have those conversations with their children. I mean, because I was sexually abused, for example, from a very young age with my children I I'm mean, a very natural conversation you know these are your toes and this is your tummy and this is your bottom and nobody touches your bottom unless your mum or dad is there if you're seeing a doctor or whatever you would hope that this would bring in conversations around that sort of thing where midwives would be talking about this sort of thing with with new parents and maybe this conversation would be had in school there's a law you know this is you know you can talk to somebody they will listen to you so that it just limits i'm not stupid enough to think this is going to stop childhood sexual abuse we have laws against murder but what i would hope is that we would have this training it would be spotted earlier the signs the behavioral signs would be spotted earlier and therefore it would limit the damage because it wouldn't be going on for so long because at the moment i think the age is like around 26 that, that an adult may, it might even be older than that, mm-hmm. that comes forward to say what what happens to them. So children would feel they're in a safer environment and they've got somebody they can actually go to.
0: Exactly. And I think it's also about actually, because what's lacking is accountability and empowerment. Yeah. And interesting that the Victims Bill, currently in Parliament, which is supposed to give victims greater purchase in the justice system, specifically excludes accountability so the bill says basically you've got these rights but if these rights are not followed doesn't matter because there's no accountability yeah. and you think ah, yeah this is an ideal opportunity for the politicians actually to kick the victims bill into shape and actually think well why don't we bolt on to the victims bill mandatory reporting you know they've got an ideal yes. opportunity they've got an yes. opportunity now you know in the coming yes. the coming months and, you know, they can look at these questions and these issues and decide, well, actually, there should be accountability.
1: I've had conversations with a lot of people on my social media that have DM'd me. I have lots of conversations with wherever I go, wherever I go, if I'm having my hair done, whatever, I talk about mandatory reporting. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm known for talking about. And people aren't aware that there isn't a law. There's just absolutely nothing in place. And when you think of, and I've got Duncan to do the maths for me, but when you think that there are half a million children each year that are sexually abused, so the longer the government don't do anything about this law, you know, making mandatory reporting, making it law, each day that goes by, that's 1,370 children more children that are being abused and I think to myself what do I have to do to get the members of parliament to understand that I mean do I have to get that I mean half a million children each year is five and a half Wembley stadiums Mm. do I have to line up half a million pairs of shoes that's children under the age of 16 because some of those would be booties some of those would be baby grows. And it's shocking that as a nation, when we've been waving the flag for the Queen, we have not been considering the fact that we do not have a law in this country that protects children and gives them a voice.
0: On that note, Becky, I think we'll bring this particular podcast to an end. I think we will resume our conversation on ICSA in its report in another podcast. On that note, I'd like to thank you, Becky, Jason and Duncan, For taking part in this podcast as always if there's any thoughts or questions about this podcast or any of our podcasts please do get in touch and please do join us again for our next podcast thank you everyone thanks thank you thank you for listening to this episode of hj talks about abuse you can subscribe to our podcast on itunes spotify or your favorite podcast player if you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today We'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk